Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, T-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, April 21st is just moments away. But first, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor sponsors, as well as Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago if you're a clueless Chicago and get a clue, chicagoreader.com and subscribe. You can also become a bin head, which uh, is a good way to help out the Ben Jarofsky show. Chicagoreader.com slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y for more information on how you can support the Ben Jarofsky show and for our entire list of episodes. We are damn near to 1,000. We're maybe like five episodes away from 1,000. The Ben Jarofsky show starts now. It is Wednesday, April 21st, and live from my apartment in his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson and legal eagle ace attorney Jim Coogan. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chauvin Verdict Wednesday. Here's why. Ah, you know why. Jury came in yesterday and found Derek Chauvin guilty in all counts. Couldn't believe it if I didn't see it myself. They read the verdict and Chauvin put his hands behind his back as this big old bailiff. I mean, this was a big, beefy guy. Slapped on the handcuffs and walked him out of the courtroom jail and presumably off to jail. I was like, damn, that was something I just could not imagine coming. In retrospect, I'm not sure how he thought he could have gotten away with this. Ladies and gentlemen, you will all agree that was cold-blooded murder. Over what? A $20 counterfeit bill that George Floyd may or may not have passed? MAGA has supported a president who's been bankrupt how many times? How many times has he been needed bailed out by various banks? Overlooked. He's kind of like an outstanding debt to the IRS right now. I forget how many millions of dollars, but they're outraged over a $20 counterfeit bill that George Floyd may or may not have passed. Those cops hauled Floyd out of the jail, out of his car, slapped on cuffs, 
and then Chauvin gratuitously put his knee on his neck until George Floyd died. Anyway, a good chunk of the country either rejoiced or breathed a sigh of relief. God bless that jury for doing the right thing. Because, you know, you can't depend on people to always do the right thing, even when the right thing is just staring them in the face. Speaking of which, the Republican Party. Yes, yes, you can always depend on the Republican Party to do the wrong thing. They celebrated the occasion of yesterday's verdict by introducing a resolution calling on Congress to censure Congresswoman Maxine Waters. They said she had had to be punished for attempting to stir up violence because when asked on Saturday what should be done if the jury didn't find Chauvin guilty, Maxine Waters said, and I quote, we've got to stay on the street and we got to be more active. We got to get more confrontational. We got to make sure that they know we mean business, end of quote. Maxine Waters later pointed out the obvious that she meant confrontational in the civil rights sense, as in good trouble, advocated by John Lewis, a civil rights hero who died last year, as when you confront injustice with marches and protests and civil disobedience, to which Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, said, how dare she? He called on Congress to rebuke her. He said, all Democrats are hypocrites. The Democrats criticize Donnie Trump for stirring up an insurrection, but they don't criticize Maxine Waters. And all the Republicans in the land said, yeah, we're victims. You're meanies. We want to be victims, too, so you have to apologize to us. For a while, it was kind of uncertain how the congressional vote would go. On the one hand, anyone with the greatest sense would know that there's a long history of black people in this country getting trampled, metaphorically speaking, which is what the whole civil rights movement is about. But on the other hand, a whole lot of white people get a little antsy when you remind them about it. They're like, I didn't do anything wrong. Why are you talking about slavery and Jim Crow to me? In fact, I just on a little tangent here. I got so many people mad at me right now. Yes, little old innocent me, humble reader writer doing a podcast in an alley overlooking a garbage can. I got baby boomers mad at me because I wrote a newsletter for the reader pointing out how all these baby boomers who are saying, what was Adam Toledo doing out at 2.30 in the morning were the same old baby boomers who bragged about fooling their parents, ducking out the door and rocking like rock stars, smoking reefer, driving their cars around town, staying out all night, getting so drunk they puked back in the day. Man, if I were a congressman, they'd introduce a resolution censoring me. Anyway, a lot of Democrats in swing districts, they're worried. Suburban swing vote in the suburbs, the one that Mayor Rahm worries so much about. Which way would they go? Would they say, I'm outraged by Maxine Waters. I think I'll vote for the white supremacist party. And yet, let's give Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, credit. She did the right thing. She stood by Maxine Waters and convinced all those Democrats to vote against the resolution. And Kevin McCarthy did the wrong thing. He rallied his Republicans to vote for it. Total party line vote. Couldn't find one Republican to essentially vote for civil rights. And sure enough, when the vote was over, the Republican political machine dispatched an email to voters in swing districts throughout the land. It went along the lines of, your congressman voted against law and for disorder. Quote, they voted for violence, unquote. Be scared, white people. Be very, very scared and angry. Very, very angry. Say what you will about Republicans. They aren't dumb. They may be immoral, but they're not dumb. They know that the key to getting back the House and the Senate in 2022 
is to scare the hell out of white people and keep black people from voting. So they moved to change voting laws in Georgia, Texas, Michigan, etc. And then yesterday, they sent out their message to white America. Be scared. Be very, very scared. Will it work? Stay tuned. Stay very, very tuned. We got a great show today, everybody. Monroe Anderson. Yes, indeed. You heard that correctly. Monroe Anderson. The man took a a break, a much-needed break to write a book. But he is he has returned. In fact, I'm looking at him right now. He's sipping tea, getting ready, doing some Tai Chi. Uh, <laughs> looking very distinctive, distinguished because he got a haircut. Haven't seen him in a while. And Jimmy Coogan, ace trial attorney, Jim Coogan will join us. We'll be talking Chauvin trial. I had to reach out to Monroe. I had to force him to take a break from the book. Uh, to come on the show because yesterday was just such a monumental moment in so many ways for America, at least uh, in the last for this century anyway. And I had to discuss with my old friend Monroe Anderson. So without further ado, let's bring on the great Monroe Anderson. Welcome back, Cotter. Welcome back to the show. It's, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, did you sign the contract yet? you <laughs> <laughs> He promised to double my salary before I came back. <laughs> That's the real reason he took the break. <laughs> I want to raise. He wanted me to triple it, ladies and gentlemen, but after a hard, serious negotiations, I agreed to double it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the check is in the mail. The check's in the mail. Now, by the way, I, I got to tell, I told Monroe briefly before we went on the air about this. I'm just going to read this to him. So uh, the reader put together an anthology of uh, my greatest hits, stories I've written going all the way back to the 80s. Uh, it's an attempt to raise money for the reader. And uh, I'm going to be bringing on various guests who were featured uh, in the, the anthology. People have written articles about going back to the 80s. Uh, and one of the uh, people that uh, I wrote about was Clarence Page, an old friend of Monroe. who used to, well, Monroe used to work for the Tribune. Clarence still works for the Tribune. Uh, Many, many years ago, Clarence put together an anthology of works by uh, immensely talented Leonida McClain, an old friend of Monroe's uh, who uh, committed suicide in the 1985, I want to say, or 84. 84. 84. Uh, And uh, Clarence Page used to be married to Leonida McClain. Anyway, he put together the anthology. There was a reading. I went to the reading. This is 1985. 86, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, 1986. Just think about that. How many years Monroe and I have been around? And uh, so this is an article. Uh, But in the article, I completely forgot this until I read it. Monroe, I'm just going to share this with you. Monroe Anderson was such a troublemaker. Man, no wonder the Tribune couldn't. They're like, God, this guy's a troublemaker. All right, here we go. Uh, This is from the article that was written in 1986, Monroe. I'm reading it to you right now. Okay. During the 1983 mayoral campaign, Monroe Anderson, then a reporter on the Tribune, plastered his cubicle with racist literature released by the Bernie Epton supporters. Most of the black staffers laughed at it as though it were funny, but most, quote, knew it was laughter to keep from crying, Leah Nita McLean wrote. This is a reference to a, a, a column of the Leah Nita McLean point, wrote, pointing out that Monroe, <laughs> Monroe, let's just talk about that for a while. You just put it in their face. You took the, the literature. Uh, I, I got to help millennials out here. Bernie Epton was the white candidate. And I'm under, underscoring white 
uh, that r- white Chicago rallied around out of fear that Harold Washington, the black candidate, might be elected mayor of city of Chicago. I'm going to point out that Harold was the Democrat. Bernie was the Republican. White people were so scared. <laughs> I'm gonna vote. They decided to vote Republican. They put out all this kind of racist literature and Monroe Anderson, troublemaker that he was, put it up on his cubicle wall so all the white people at the Tribune could see it. They couldn't deny it. Monroe, I'm surprised they didn't fire you right there and then. Uh, there were there were there were uh, su- suggestions along those lines. I was uh, right before the uh, general election, the, the the Monday before the Tuesday election. I was on the Take Today show, and uh, Jane Pauley asked me. Well, uh, what would happen if Harold Washington loses? Uh, there's been talk that there'll be rioting in the streets of Chicago. That was a trick question, obviously. <laughs> and so I, I had learned how to, um, when I needed to think about something when being interviewed, you claim that you didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so I pointed at my, my ear to indicate that I hadn't heard it. So she repeated the question. And then I said something to the effect of, well, pretty much this is what I said. Well, I would hope not that there would be, to the rioting, that I would hope not that there are a lot of people who are really emotionally invested in this election. The Tribune switchboard blew up. There were calls from coast to coast with people bitching about what I said. But the, the idea that there might be a riot if they, if they cheated Harold out of the election. And there were reporters at the Tribune, white reporters, who said that I should be fired for saying that. They publicly said that or they just said it to the uh, to, I mean, they didn't put it in print. To they, the editors. OK, not, not to me. But I, I did have white friends in the newsroom, too. So they, my white friends in the newsroom told me that there were people advocating for my being fired because I said that. And it just pissed Jim, Jim God, what was his last name? I easily forgot. The editor, the executive editor of the Tribune, it put me further up on his shit list. <laughs> did he call you I, in for, for Did he call you into the office? Yeah, Jim Squire, huh? Did he call you into the office? No, 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 he didn't call me into the office. He didn't, he didn't get sent out of the principal. Come here, son. I want to tell you something. But, but he, he had, um, he, he, he was at a meeting, uh, the, the newspaper editors meeting that they had annual the newspaper editor. And he was talking to another editor who I knew and, um, who was black uh, who was married to my um, first wife, as a matter of fact. But anyway, gets caught. That's a tangent we didn't need to go down. <laughs> right. But anyway, Squires told him, his name was uh-huh. Jay Harris, and Squires told him that he had two troublemakers, and I was one of the two. And the other, the other, the, the other wasn't really a troublemaker. He's just a friend of mine. <laughs> so he's a troublemaker by association. A, a black guy or a white guy? A black guy, right, right. 
Yeah, man, that's uh, I'm trying to I mean, we got to get on to the, the news of the day, but there is some relevance because there was very there was a lot of concern that there would be a, a rioting unrest on all the cities. You know, the I think they called in the National Guard in Chicago right. uh, if, if uh, the Chauvin verdict had gone the other way. Right. And um, so, I mean, in that regards, little has changed since 1983. Um. I don't understand what you said that was, excuse my ignorance, Monroe. I'm really trying to, I'm trying to figure out what you said that was so offensive. I said there might be rioting. I didn't know. I would hope not. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The whole point is they were afraid of the rioting. You just. Exactly. I know. But my problem was that. I couldn't because because I grew up in segregated Gary, yeah. Indiana, and I mm-hmm. I never knew a white person until I went to Indiana University in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I had I had yet uh, to learn the ways of white people. <laughs> and so, Man, so, I'd have given you a lesson if you just come to me. <laughs> this is eighty two, eighty three. So I didn't realize that I was supposed to say. Oh no! That, they they would never do that. <laughs> they would just accept it. I, I think that was a, I, I'm, obviously I'm still not really good at the ways of white people, but I think that was what I was supposed to say. I'm not yeah. sure what I could have said not to get in trouble. That's why I think it was a trick question. It is a trick. I I think now I'm thinking about it. If I were yeah. giving advice to you, right? If I like, could you imagine this back in the day? If like when you went in the world and I was like the white voice in your mind. Yeah. And so like they would say something to you and, and then I would you hear me. All right, Monroe, here's what you do. Okay. So right. here's what white people want you to say. Right. So I think what you should have said in yeah. quotes should have yeah. yes. is what well, was Jane Pauline? Uh, Jane, I would be outraged if that were to happen because there's no reason, absolutely no reason that black people should ever riot. Uh, this is a great country, and we've done really well in this country. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That, okay. sounds, that sounds right. You needed me, Monroe. <laughs> and uh, by the way, Jane. Uh... The I'm not sure I could have. My mouth, my mouth <laughs> would be bad. I'd be going, oh, 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 Let me tell you another situation. I mean, similar to this. It's, we're off the track, but I... I was when I planned to leave the Tribune. I had a job at the a job um, interview at the New York Times. So they flew me into New York, and I met with three of the top editors, and we we're talking. And the first thing they want to know in my job interview is what did I think about jo- uh, uh, Jesse Jackson calling New York Jaime Town. Mm. That was the first question in a job interview. Wait, and what year is this? This was 80, um, 84. Oh, so it was, oh, it was right where it happened. I was going to say, yeah. if it was, it was okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Jesse Jackson made those remarks uh, in an interview with the Washington Post and when he was running for president in 1984. So go ahead, Monroe. Okay. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so... Um, I, 
I think I gave him the right answer, but basically I told him um, Jesse had a nasty mouth and he he called, he said all kinds of things about all kinds of people, but he wasn't anti, an anti-Semite. Yeah. Which he wasn't. No. You know, Jesse he isn't. Never, He's still alive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so um, I, I, don't, it, I don't know if that. Did they like that answer? And I think they liked that, but the problem I had, the reason I never, ever worked for the New York Times, although they had approached me in earlier years also, mm-hmm. is that um, after I had the interview, they were impressed, but there was a a um, former New York Times reporter who was an editor at the Tribune. His name was Doug Neela. Mm-hmm. And I was a troublemaker <laughs> at the Tribune, and he duly reported as much. And so they took, they sent all my clippings, everything I sent to them for the job. They had it um, delivered by um, UPS <laughs> to, <my house>. <laughs> <laughs> to make sure I got it. <laughs> and I never, ever heard from them again. Yeah. No, I, that's the, we could do a whole story about that. Uh, but I mean, it's connected. And right. um Okay. Okay. Let's do the Maxine Waters thing. Yeah, let's go to Maxine Waters. Uh, I, you heard my take on it. What's your take? Two words. Mo Brooks. The Uh, the congressman. Congressman. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah. Yeah. Who on January 6th, Mm -hmm. 2021 was at a rally and was talking about going to the Capitol and having the, the fight. And I'm still waiting to hear Republicans criticize that or pass some censure on what he said, which was obviously violent. It wasn't like more, um, better trouble, uh, good, good trouble or anything. This was trouble, trouble. He was talking about. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole concept of good trouble yes, that John Lewis advocated, uh, the former right. congressman uh, who passed away, I think it was about a year ago, a civil rights hero, stood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in face of uh, advancing Alabama state troopers who were about ready to pound his head in because they were calling uh, uh, for they civil did. rights. They did pound his head in, yes. They were, they were advancing at him. The, the whole point about good trouble is that you stir up trouble against these outrageous laws these Jim Crow segregation laws. That's good trouble. I'm trying to think what good trouble the Republicans represent. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like when they went on the, to, to storm the Capitol, they were doing that basis on a lie that the election had quote unquote been stolen. So I'm right. trying to think like, what is the good in this trouble that they're stirring up? Go well, ahead. Monroe. Because from their perspective, mm-hmm. The election had been stolen. Mm-hmm. Trump told him so. And therefore, they were saving America from being stolen mm-hmm. and putting that socialist Joe Biden in office. See, the and thing by, is... And by the way, <laughs> just for a little salt in the wound here. Uh, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> remember when go. I told you Bernie would never fly? Here we go. <laughs> Joe Biden, the Republicans have made Joe Biden into a socialist. Yeah. 
you know, good old middle of the road Joe is now a radical. Here we go. I knew Bernie. I knew there was a Bernie Bash coming. I knew it. I knew it was coming. Whatever. I, I just have to take it like a man and move on. Uh, <laughs> I get so much grief. Now, Monroe is really just in defense of Monroe. And I'm going to say this and, and see if you disagree with me, Monroe. Okay. Monroe is not a centrist. Okay. No. In the classic. I mean, Pete Cunningham comes on the show. That's my centrist. I got one centrist friend. Susanna Mendoza was on the show yesterday. Control. She's a centrist. Yes. You know, I got some centrist friends. Monroe is a lefty, basically. But, and, Jeff, and this is a point. Liberal. That's how I just described. Just left of liberal. Uh, okay, just left. Did you vote for uh, uh, Reverend Jesse L. Jackson in the 1988 presidential election? Of course. Of okay. Course. Well, he was more. Le- he was more to the left than Bernie. He was where Bernie was. So this this rewriting of history that so many people think. Wait, 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 wait a minute. If if you ever saw um, the um, documentary that WTTW ran about the Black Metropolis from DuSable to Obama. In that documentary, there is a quote from me back in the day when I was a young man, and the quote was, Jesse Jackson will never be president. So I've maintained my sensibilities and common sense from Jesse to Bernie. Yeah, (laughs) but you still voted for Jesse. You still oh, vote? Yeah. Okay, I voted for Jesse, but I didn't. But I didn't vote for him, thinking he's going to be president. And, and by the way, just so everybody knows, who wasn't around in '88, you could vote for Jesse. It was in the prime. It was like me voting for Bernie Sanders in a Democratic primary, knowing that in all likelihood he would not win the primary, would not be the nominee, uh, and in fact, the Democrats would have a centrist, and they did Hillary Clinton and and Joe Biden. Uh, but knowing that I wanted to send a message to the Democratic Party about not abandoning its principles and essentially the vote for Jesse Jackson in 1988 and 1984 is very similar. Correct Monroe? Yes. Yes. Very much. Very much. And and I wanted to send the message um, so that we can have president Obama years later. (laughs) Not that it did a whole lot of good on a lot of fronts, but we'll, we'll, we'll spare Obama that one for the moment. Uh, All right. Uh, so Maxine Waters, yes, the Republicans clearly jumped on Maxine Waters' comment as a way, as a way to promote themselves as what victims, as outraged citizens. No, no, it was just, Go all goes back to January sixth. Uh, if if they could distract everybody from what they did on that day, then uh, it takes a weight off of them. Mm-hmm. So um, they're very much into the uh, whataboutisms. Yes. And so um, they tried to overthrow the U.S. government on January 6th. And Maxine made her statement a couple of days ago. And so it's, well, what about Maxine Waters? <laughs> She's calling for the uh, overthrow of liquor stores and targets <laughs> from coast to coast. 
<laughs> and of course, that's the false equivalency of overthrowing the U.S. government. If you can't figure that out, then screw you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, all right. So, Monroe, were you uh, surprised by the verdict uh, in the Chauvin trial yesterday? Uh, no, you know, because the prosecution put on such a brilliant uh, job. They did such a brilliant job. I mean, it was thorough, and the defense was poop butt in comparison. Uh, but I was concerned that even in the face of all that, there may be one person on that jury that would, would hang it. It still could end up a hung jury, but it, it wasn't. Uh, the, 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 the defense for Chauvin was, well, um, anybody or anything killed George Floyd, but Chauvin, mm-hmm. you know, the, the exhaust from the, the, the um, pipe killed him. Although it was an electric car. And we are sure whether it was running or not running. But even if it had been running, it still wouldn't have killed it. For and and the fresh air, you know, like trying to catch the uh, COVID virus out in the middle of Central Park all by yourself, that sort of thing. Um, He he had a he had a, a big a big heart. He, he 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 overdosed on drugs. You know the drug. Something killed him. Besides Chauvin having his knee on his neck for nine point twenty nine seconds, and um, the the final the, the final thing in the closing arguments when they said, "Don't believe the defense. Um, believe your eyes." <laughs> And they had seen those. I mean, the thing was, I mean, one great line from it was a nine-year-old girl yeah. knew that this was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't know how it was wrong, why it was wrong, but she knew it was wrong. But was there at the back of your mind, just like this fear that they'd still screw it up anyway? Just like somewhere in the back. No, I know I was a little no, worried one, about it. No, no, one juror. Yeah. Because I, you know, we don't know who was on the jury. Jury, yeah, we don't know who was on the jury, and we don't know, and we sort of know their backgrounds. You know, some were black, and some were white, and some were biracial. You know, they sort of gave you that rundown, but you didn't know who these people were, um, except they all were allegedly ignorant. But other than that, because nobody, nobody had seen the full video. Most only one one person had seen any of it at all, and the others had seen uh, segments of it on the news. Mm. But these were not people who were like up on what was going on in the day. Yeah. So I I didn't know how they would swing. Yeah, I I I was I was worried about that. But um, the the prosecution just did such a great job. Yeah. 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 By the way, uh, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan uh, is going to be joining us. Uh, Monroe, feel free to stick around or take a little break before we bring uh, Jim Coogan on. We're going to take the deep dive. Uh, Yeah, I have a question for Jim. 
All right, uh, Monroe, I'll have some questions for Jim, too. Uh, by the way, in the old days when Jim would come on my radio show before I was unceremoniously fired, uh, we would take questions uh, for Attorney Coogan, legal questions, all kinds of questions. My memory is like all these questions. I've been looking at Coogan going, you know the answer to this? <laughs> that was pretty good, man. It was like all kinds of My landlord uh, owes me money for the that and that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everybody's an expert but somebody's expertise is better than others so we're going to take a break jim coogan will join us with monroe anderson when uh, we'll be analyzing what went down uh, yesterday uh in the uh derek chauvin trial uh, how did the defense do how did the prosecutors do the, the tactics and strategies and what it means going forward so we'll be right back with monroe anderson and jim coogan <laughs> I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. I think you're 100% full of shit is what I think. If you think we won't, fuck you then. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from his attic. Uh, Dennis just loves playing that exchange, (laughs) and I love it here. I got to tell you, folks, things are gloomy and... Dom down in the dumps. I just listened to that exchange between Alderman Raymond Lopez and uh, our mayor, Lori Life. And I go, you know, it's not so bad out there. That's uh, editorial board by Michael Girardi. We haven't played that song in a while. One of my favorite songs. All right. Jim Coogan is going to join Monroe Anderson and myself. Welcome back, Jim. Haven't talked to you in a while. Look, uh, Hal and Hardy. Hey, how's it going, Ben? I, I, I was wondering if I was going to get any more calls from you now that Bill Barr is not at the Justice Department. He, no, I didn't. But- I didn't, I didn't know if we ran out of legal issues all of a sudden, but it's good to be here. And it actually is really good to hear Mike Girardi's editorial board because it's very impressive that somebody could turn something like editorials and their, uh, let's say, uselessness or, or half uselessness into a good rock song. So it's always a good listen. It is amazing. They, they, he took the inanity of the editorial uh, advice. The editorial boards try to look at any issue in such a way as to take away uh, the controversies or the things that might get him in trouble. Uh, and uh, yes, it put a pronouncement out. Uh, by the way, uh, we could have a whole discussion. And I'm going to hold back on this because you and Monroe are sitting here. Uh, Jim and two uh, very geeky people when it comes to the crimes of Donald Trump. I read uh, uh, Weissman's book, Andrew Weissman's book, Inside the Mueller Investigation. I don't know if you had a chance to read it yet. I read it. I had. I checked it out of the library, and it makes such a powerful case for Donald Trump having just what's the word I want to uh, use right now, just thwarted that investigation and he got away with it. And if you, I just urge everybody, we'll hold off on this discussion. I may bring it back to you at the end, uh, Jim and Monroe, but uh, Weissman really lays out the case uh, for Donald Trump having gone beyond anything that Richard Nixon did, in my humble opinion, with Watergate uh, in terms of intimidating the prosecutors and, uh, and thwarting their efforts to uh, to bring justice. So we are not done with that one yet. I don't think uh, anybody else is. All right, let's get your thoughts, Jim, about what went down yesterday. Monroe and I have been talking about it for a little while. From our point of view, we couldn't see uh, how the jury could go any other way with the way the defense uh, presented its case and the way the prosecutors defended, uh, put their case out. What was your reaction? Uh, well, I can tell you what my actual gut reaction was 
because I, you know, I saw the news flash that the jury had come back with their verdict and I put it on my computer to see what was going to happen. I figured it was worth watching live. And the actual gut feeling I had when they started to announce the verdicts was kind of like a, like a very, like an overwhelming kind of sadness. And I think, so even though our cases are civil jury trials, I know how it feels like the gravity of that moment when you're actually waiting for the jury to come back. Cause you really don't know, you know, even if you think the evidence is very straightforward, you don't know. And I think the sadness part of it was probably for two reasons. One, even if justice is done, we're talking about a murder case. Nobody wins. It doesn't matter even if justice is done and, and Derek Chauvin should be uh, convicted and should be sentenced. It's not a victory for anybody. And I think the other aspect or the other reason why I felt that way is there shouldn't have been this suspense because I think the president said it very uh, eloquently last night that this was a situation where everything was lined up, you know, that, that we very likely could have had the opposite outcome if there was no video, if there weren't so many witnesses, if people weren't brave enough to go testify about what they saw uh, in the face of what could feel like a lot of intimidating factors. And with all that evidence, that's what it took to actually secure a conviction in a situation like this. You have a white police officer or just a police officer in general doing what they could otherwise have explained away and said, listen, you know, I, I think the official story was going to be, we encountered this person, we came on a scene, we effectuated an arrest, they had some kind of medical reaction and, oh, you know, it's a shame, but he's dead. Mm-hmm. And if it weren't for having a video, if it wasn't so much overwhelming evidence of what happened, and, and more importantly, like a video that captured everything, I don't know what would happen here. So that, it's gratifying that the right thing happened but you still don't feel, or I don't really feel, I'm, I'm glad that I think this is a step in the right direction, but I still have my concerns over whether the American justice system writ large can continue this momentum and keep doing better than what has been too much of the overall percentage of criminal cases for the last hundred plus years, you know, in the times of modern policing in the United States of America. Uh, to your point, Jim, my, my guess is without the video, without the eyewitnesses, uh, there wouldn't charges would not have been uh, right. pressed in the first place. So I just would, the, the intervention of the, the attorney general's office prosecuting this case and several of those lawyers doing this uh, on their own time, not even getting paid to be part of that prosecution team. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were very good. I mean, these are good lawyers who know what they're doing prosecuting this case. We've seen in other situations how there's there's inherent conflicts when a local prosecutor, state's attorney, district attorney, whatever they're called in that state, is trying to prosecute someone from the very same police department that they have to do business with every day. That's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why either the cases aren't brought or they're prosecuted with less than the same fervor than they would be if it wasn't a uh, member of the same team, so to speak, that they were prosecuted. All right, before I let, uh, ask Mon- let Monroe ask the question or comment, I just have to ask you this point. Monroe and I have talked about this uh, at length, that the, the job the defense did, in my humble opinion, and I think I was Monroe's as well, was so inadequate. Um, <laughs> so my question to you as a lawyer, my question to you is, Monday morning quarterbacking, I understand, 
Can you think of any other strategy a defense lawyer might have employed in uh, such a moment? When it was so obviously he was killing the man. I, I do you think there's any other tactic or strategy that the defense lawyer might have employed to win either win over the jury or hope in the, from their perspective win over the judge eventually with sentencing? Go ahead. Uh, I think the sentencing part is still. There, we don't know exactly how they're going to work that. I mean, that's that phase has not been entered into. They can, they certainly will, will spend a lot of time talking about his record as an officer, the you know whatever the, the, the absence. I think generally speaking of prior incidents, the fact that he's you know done a job serving the community, um, first offense, all that kind of stuff. I don't know what other trial. I mean, the first thing that I would have considered is would he have been convicted on less counts if they had entered into more serious plea bargaining um, and tried to plead guilty to something. But I think that there were reasons why I assume the client wasn't interested whatsoever. It's hard to tell you even watching his body language yesterday showed him very resigned to what had happened. I don't know if maybe because he sat through the whole trial, he realized how inevitable it was. And that's why he feels differently about it in April than he did five months ago, when I'm sure they must have had some kind of discussions about the possibility of a plea, because I don't really know what else you can do. I'm familiar. Look, there are, there are lots of similarities between civil and, and criminal cases in this regard. Our clients, injured clients, insurance companies, and the defense attorneys that work for them, they'll look at and they will point to what lawyers and doctors call comorbidities like heart conditions, lung conditions, or it's not a comorbidity exactly, but um, drugs in somebody's system. They will look at, I mean, that's, that's part of the quote unquote causation defense that they have here. Um, It's one of the things that you do. I don't know that it was effective here. There's lots of cases where it's not effective. And sometimes defense attorneys, uh, I think get themselves tied into knots trying to focus so much on those things. I think it was, I think it felt very flat here, but the only thing I would would say in their defense, uh, not that I'm really trying to defend them is I don't really know what other strategies I I haven't heard anybody express cogently what those defense strategies could have been because once you take that man into custody, this, this doesn't really require police use of force experts to explain it. Once you take that man into custody, he's now under your control. Now you're responsible for what happens to him. If he's no longer, if he will, if he was resisting arrest, but he isn't doing it any longer, then that no longer plays a role in your explanation as to what force you used and how much of it you used. Mm-hmm. And so what else can you say? What, what rational person could look at that video and think that any of this was necessary? I, I, so I don't know what else they could have done. I mean, I, I, I'll give them that, that they really had very little to work with. Monroe. Yeah, they, they did have very little to work with, but a couple of things uh, along those lines. First of all, had the prosecutor been some um, standard issue white prosecutor instead of Keith Ellison, who is a black Muslim, <laughs> um, I, I don't know if it would have been pursued as strategically and as thoroughly as it was the prosecution. And um, the, the, the other thing is, I 
think that um, things may have worked better for Chauvin if the defense was the police department and policing in America in general. That this is how it was done. This is how he was following the culture, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that the uh, police union was was paying for the defense, <laughs> and uh, and and uh, Nelson was hooked into the police union. So that never would have been a case. Okay. Now, for my question to you, Jim, mm-hmm. it, it, it's been reported that Chauvin and George Floyd knew each other. They worked together uh, at, 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 at some bar or something where uh, Chauvin was was the bodyguard. I mean, sorry, uh, Floyd was the bodyguard. Floyd was us. Floyd uh, Chauvin was outside um, security, and so they knew each other. Why do you think this is a, a, a legal thing? Why do you think that didn't come up in the trial? Why, why wouldn't the prosecution use that? Because it could have been a personal beef that that he did. I was curious. I mean, I remember that part of the story from last summer, from yeah. June, or, you know, a week or two after the incident happened. Right. Because that, that was that was Floyd's job before this, and he had been laid off because of the pandemic. Because it it was like a bar restaurant that obviously was closed like everything else was where you'd have right. people. I don't remember from subsequent reporting, if anybody really found a link, it, it seemed initially like that might be an explanation for why there was more to this because yeah. otherwise other than, you know, when you watch um, these kind of interactions and now we have so many more situations that we can actually see because of either cell phone videos or body cameras, when you watch these interactions, typically the overreactions by police officers look to be generated by heat of the moment, just fear, you know, poor decision-making in, in those, in those moments that are so quick and they're just, they are, it's, it's not an excuse because part of the training is to deal with situations like that. But you have to admit that these are rapid succession, instantaneous decisions being made by officers. So it's either that, or it's one of those situations like you know, that 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 disturbing arrest in in Maryland, where the uh, army I think he's a ranger or he's active duty mm-hmm. and the cops are completely freaking out. The guy's doing nothing yeah. to incite any of this, and it's almost like the the cop is taking it personally, and now they're trying to inflict some kind of revenge, or they keep escalating the situation as if they're being second guessed or their manhood's being to. to uh, doubted or something. So those seem to be the broad categories of why these things happen. Yeah. I don't know what, once you have Floyd on the ground and you could at that point cuff him, put him in a vehicle, take him to the station as like you normally would under normal procedures. There's nothing else that happens along either of those tracks. So that, it seems like that could have been the explanation, but they, I assume looked into it and couldn't find anything couldn't yeah. find anything definitive enough or it was too speculative. Maybe somebody knows something and they never came forward. Maybe there was an altercation that nobody else was a witness to, mm. um, you know, because I don't know, somebody's friend, a friend of Floyd's, a friend of Chauvin's was drunk at the place. The other one had to throw him out and they didn't like it. And they said, you should have come to me first. And now nobody knows about that because nobody else witnessed that argument. And, yeah. and he remembered and he remembered being mad at Floyd over the incident. You know, I, I think that that's something that uh, 
maybe Derek Chauvin knows about, but because the Fifth Amendment protects him from ever offering any information about that to the prosecutors, that stays hidden. I mean, that could have been because who knows? Maybe that would have <laughs> that would have added to uh, the prosecution's evidence because there was a personal beef, and somehow he was fortunate enough that nobody else could be the source of that information. Yeah. And without it, then there's no way to introduce that evidence. There's no way to even make the argument. Um, not to mention that if you are the prosecutors here, if you didn't find out something solid on that, right? Why even bring it in? You know, you what you have at the end of the day is. It's exactly what Mr. Blackwell, one of the prosecutors, highlighted in his rebuttal, which is about as simple and straightforward as it gets. Lawyers love to be able to say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a simple case, and here's why. Yeah. Well, they're, they're all copying off Ben Jarofsky when he says, and here's why. Because you want to you, you <laughs> think it's simple, because that means that your case comports with common sense. Right. So if, he, if Blackwell can come back and say, folks, you saw the video. You right. don't even worry about the rest of this. What else can anybody say about this case? Then you you can, without introducing any of those other things, you strip away the opportunity for other defense arguments. You know, now now yeah. can use this distraction and say, well, hey, they didn't really prove. Because here's the thing: remember the burden of proof. It's it's fundamental to every prosecution and every civil case. The burden of proof is where all, like everything stems from that. When I'm explaining things to clients. So if you're the prosecution, you must prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. If you raise more issues, the defense can kind of obfuscate and say, well, look, they brought up this personal beef thing. Were you satisfied with that proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Right. That, that isn't an element of the crime, but because you've introduced it, now suddenly you may have set yourself up as a prosecutor for having to prove something that you actually can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and you've given one of the jurors an opportunity to go off on a stray tangent and you got a home jury or you hang on one of the counts, like the, the most severe yeah. situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Jimmy mentioned something. I got to follow up on it. Uh, Chauvin did not testify. He took the fifth. Uh, first of all, I, I never, I can't recall seeing that in a courtroom where the, the, the defendant actually just said, I take the fifth. Um, I just thought they just took the fifth or they just didn't, testify but be that as it may uh your thoughts about that do you think uh he should have testified go ahead look one of the bedrock principles of our criminal justice system that i think the founders were right on when they wrote the bill of rights is the fifth amendment protection against self-incrimination because that i think that was novel in the 1790s i don't think that existed anywhere else obviously the constitutional republic was new and creating that civil right was a pretty powerful statement in, in people's ability to defend themselves against the government. Um, now, <laughs> plenty of other things have gone wrong in the, in the application of that over the years with uh, confessions that were beaten out of people and so on and so forth. But so I just want to say, like, at the outset, that is fundamental. But and, and the jury is always instructed to, to be uh, very clear on the idea that the refusal to testify is not taken to be any sort of admission and it's not supposed to be interpreted as, uh, as anything at all. They're not supposed to weigh that in any way in their, in their, uh, deliberations. Does that really happen? I mean, do, because in this situation, if you, if you're sitting there as a juror, I think your, your common sense impression is if there were an explanation for what happened here 
and why Chauvin so casually just continued to put this kind of lethal force on a man's larynx and, and neck. Mm-hmm. Who else would know but Chauvin? And nobody else came in and said, hey, I was there and he told me, uh, I'm really worried that if this guy gets up, he's going to stab us all. Or I'm really worried that this guy's so amped up on whatever, adrenaline, drugs, something that we can't control him if I release him from this force. So nobody else said it. If that was, I think as a jury, you might think, well, maybe that's why. But if he's not even going to tell us, then I guess there is no reason. I mean, that would not be, a, it's not exactly a fair inference to draw under our Fifth Amendment protections and that jurisprudence. But I can imagine them thinking that because besides his explanation, and if there is, and if they can conclude, well, I guess he doesn't have an explanation. How could you, what, what are they left with? You're not giving them even like the thinnest read upon which to think this was somehow reasonable use of force. If there's no excuse, then why is he doing this? I mean, that, that's the problem with this video. It's one of those things that's so inexplicable yeah. without some other explanation. And you're, you're left just, just kind of feeling depressed that this happened and it, it looks awful. And then there's no, then there still is no explanation. Now, what else do you, what else do you expect besides a, a conviction on whatever the charge well, all right, at, and it, really at the risk of being the Monday morning quarterback, I will say this. Uh, Jim knows this. I, I'm no lawyer, but I am obsessed with trials. Just got finished reading, by the way, the late, latest Michael Connolly novel, uh, Jim, uh, Law of Innocence, I think it's called. And it's uh, when it, I, he has this whole um, uh, Lincoln lawyer series that he does where the trial lawyer is the star of the show. And in this particular case, the trial lawyer himself, Mickey Haller is uh, uh, accused of murder and he's defending himself. Okay. So I'm really into these things. Following up on what Monroe said, I'm thinking of things like the Twinkie defense from way before you guys time. Well, Monroe was alive, but way before your time, Jim, back in 1979, I want to say where a former police officer, Dan White shot, the mayor of San Francisco and Harvey Milk, George Moscone and Harvey Milk, and he argued that the, the reason he did it because he was, he consumed too much Twinkies. He was enraged. Remember this moment? I know Monroe remembers this. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was in San Francisco on vacation when the murder occurred. Yeah, it was a horrible, horrible murder. And the thing is, Jim, when you do that, when you take a peculiar defense like that, and say, well, there were these circumstances that motivated me to do this, you're admitting wrong. And to Monroe's point, that lawyer, that defense lawyer was brought there by the, the police union, and they don't want to ever admit that a police officer did anything wrong or anything outside of the standard rule book that police officers are supposed to follow, even if he has his knee in the man's neck and his hands in his pockets. That's the part of like, you know what I mean? He's gets hands in his pockets. So it's really hard to think that he's feeling afraid. I would think that a creative lawyer would come up with some kind of equivalent of a Twinkie defense to sort of undercut what we're seeing in front of us. What's your thoughts about that? Well, you're right that if you if if the defendant cop 
is trying to offer an explanation, then that can be that would be interpreted as an admission that what he did was wrong in the first place, or that it is outside the regular scope of the use of force guidelines. And you're right that one of the most powerful defenses that any uh, officer in the situation can offer is, listen, this is just how we do things. Now that fell flat because his own chief fired him and testified that that's not how they do things. But, and this goes to the, the uniqueness of these circumstances, right? I mean, that again, to Biden's point in explaining this and framing this, and he's not the only commentator who did that. You not only have the video, you not only have all these eyewitnesses, you also have an extraordinarily callous and casual depiction of Chauvin while he's doing it. But you also have the blue wall of silence didn't, didn't defend the man here. They didn't come in and either say nothing or say, this is how we do things. There wasn't there. I mean, they had their own defense on an argument as to that, but they really weren't supported by the actual department in coming in and, and explaining and defining their use of force uh, guidelines and saying that this is part of the training. So that's another prong that uh, his defense team really didn't have in their at their disposal, another prong of the typical defense of these cases, leaving them, again, without much to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, your thoughts about uh, Maxine Waters' comments leading to a potential, what, uh, overturning? on appeal. Do you think the the defense lawyer will move in that direction? And what's your thoughts? Go ahead. So my reaction to that in general is that from a legal perspective, jurors motivations are very, they're not really a strong basis for any appeal. I mean, there was the comment from the trial judge saying, you know, Mr. Defense counsel, I can understand how that might have given you something to work with on appeal you know, then it depends on the outcome, but you're, they, there won't be jurors aren't expected to, nor do they offer a rationale for what they do. So they're there. They speak by their verdict. You know, that the, the Latin derivation is they're saying something and they're, what they're saying is the truth. That's where verdict comes from. So it's guilty. And if you listen to the process it's saying they do the same thing in Illinois where the judge will go around and call on each juror and confirm that that was in fact, they call it polling the jury. Was that then? And is it now your verdict? Yes, 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 yes. He went on the line. And then he even asks again to the group, is this what say you all? And you heard a chorus of yes, that's it. They're not going to, there won't be a subsequent, there's not a subsequent procedure where they all file affidavits saying, and I was worried about the city breaking out into a riot. And I also heard what, Representative Waters said and figured, well, if she's saying that, then the odds are even greater. So I knew I had to convict the guy because I didn't want my house to burn down. I mean, that, that won't be out there. The only times, the rarest of occasions where juror motivation is actually, where they look behind that is a, actual jury tampering, bribery, extortion, you know, something where there's, where a juror comes back and says, guess what? Uh, I got a note in my mailbox during the trial where somebody said that if I don't do the right thing in this case, my cat's going to go missing or, you know, check under the hood the next time I start my car, some kind of actual threat or somebody comes forward and says they know about a bribe that was paid to a juror uh, to, to, to let a defendant off. So short of that, the odds of that being a successful appeal, I, I don't know what Minnesota, I didn't study what their law is on that kind of appeal, 
but they are few and far between in, in being successful to say that somehow public, because, because listen, public pressure is always a factor here. Yeah. You're the jury itself is supposed to be the conscience of the community. And they're supposed to speak on behalf of the community. They're supposed to be a representative derivation of the people in that jurisdiction. That's the point. So if the people in that jurisdiction are outraged at this conduct yeah. and want to find the person who did it under the ba- under the color of law, committed murder, want to find them guilty, then that would be consistent with the community's outrage as opposed to unduly influenced by it, at least in my opinion. Well, to the point of public pressure, I'm going to ask both of you this. I'll start with Monroe. To the point of public pressure, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, if there was not a clear video of Chauvin with his uh, hands in his pocket and his knees on George Floyd's neck, I'm not sure there would have been a prosecution to begin with. I'll go one step further. I'm not certain that there would have been a prosecution had not for the fact that people immediately took to the streets across the world, world, but really in Minneapolis and Monroe, your thoughts on that. Um, I know that we're supposed to say, no, they would do the right thing and trust (laughs) and you shouldn't in any way. It gets back to that anecdote you, you were alluding to Monroe back in 1983 when Harold, when they asked you on the Today Show, would there have been rioting? I, if Harold was uh, defeated by Bernie Epton, I, 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 I struggle with this one, Monroe. I don't have a clear answer to this. Would the state of Minnesota have done the right thing and brought charges against uh, these? Don't forget, we'll get into the other officers who are facing trial without the public pressure. Your thoughts, Monroe? Okay, again, I go back to Keith Ellison. Uh, had, had, had there been a, some a, a different attorney general? No, for sure. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Keith would have tried at least. He would have tried. He, he would have pursued it. You know, j- just like, um, I forget her name, but the, the black woman in New York who's the attorney general. I mean, you have a different breed in the past, a generation ago. Uh, black people were not in positions of power. And so things got through, got passed, because we had to beg for people's goodwill and et cetera. Um, now you have black Americans who are in the driver's seat, and um, they aren't as understanding as white prosecutors can be in these situations. James, that's the attorney in New York. Uh, yeah. Jim, Jim, Jim Coogan, what's your thoughts? Well, I think that's a great point because ultimately what it takes is it, he's a public office holder. So if the people in, in his state in, in Minnesota are clearly clamoring for there to be a prosecution, then that should influence his decision-making. Mm-hmm. And I guess it would have been fascinating to try to test Monroe's hypothesis if it was 25, 30 years ago and it was a white officer and a black man was, was basically murdered, and you had a, a white male attorney general, would they have done nothing? I think the odds are probably good. But the other thing is we wouldn't have had a cell phone video. So then you also don't have the thing that's so, you know, that's so powerful to motivate everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's why those things, I mean, that's why we, we'll never even know. So how many times, 30 years ago, you had Rodney King. You had a video there, and that wasn't enough. Exactly. So, you know, then you get into the insane 
uh, you know, change of venue that occurred in that case right. where they moved the case out to the, the right. very white suburb. I mean, that looking back at something like that, I guess that's that's what sets us up to to now. Right. Like, boy, anything can go wrong, and because the American system of criminal justice is so screwed up. Maybe we're past it. I don't feel like we are until we get way past. This is one of those things right. where you want to outrun the wave by a few hundred yards before you're, you feel safe that the tsunami is not going to pull you back in again. Uh, and especially if you're a black man or woman in America, that's, why would you feel any other way? You'd have to be, you know, you, you have the benefit of experience to not trust that the system would figure this out. So, you know, back to like what, the system here would have provided for or what the influence of uh, public perception and public outrage. I don't think that, uh, I think that everything came together as kind of a perfect storm here. So it's good yeah. because this is justice in this situation. You, you can't, it's hard to imagine how any other outcome would have made any sense. But again, because the odds of having everything come together exactly the right way where million, maybe billions hundreds of millions of people all felt on one side of this issue and, and even people who would really, really like to give the cop the benefit of the doubt couldn't find some kind of shelter and some kind of thin reed to stand on here. Uh, this exception could hopefully not, but could still just prove the rule. We don't really know how this is going to play out in other situations, but yeah. I do believe, you know, like we've been dealing with in the city of Chicago for the past few days the proliferation and use of video, even though video can be conflicting, it can still, you can have more questions and answers after watching a video, but at the same time, I still think it's better than only getting one version of events because, you know, if, if a cop is interacting with a person and that person's dead, there's only one witness at that point. Maybe there's another cop, you know, <laughs> you know, so those people are in theory, they might defend each other, which is something that we know has happened. Even if we can't always prove it, you know, it's happened. So, more video, more alleyways with video, more, you know, bank across the street with a video, getting different perspectives. It can't be a bad thing in the sense that at least we'll have more evidence. It'll force people to deal with these situations more. Mm -hmm. The fact that this was pushed like this will also force United States, Americans, voters, taxpayers to reconcile with this because ultimately, Ben, we've talked about this before. These kind of things cost everybody lots and lots of money. We want to fix our roads, bridges. We want to be able to pay for pensions for police officers. Well, it's easier to do if you're not, pardon the phrase, but pissing away yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. And just in the city of Chicago in the last 15 years, I've seen that study. It's like $600 million or something. That's insane. Right. And that's not, it's not making anybody any safer, right? There's no, if your goal is not to, if your goal is to make society the most efficient as it, as you can, or government to cost as little as possible, which everybody who gets a property tax bill would prefer to do that, then you have to change the system yeah. and you have to change police training and strategy, escalating things, turning them into life or death events is not making anybody safer or costing us less money. So it's basically the stupidest possible way to run things. Right. The thing that makes me optimistic about the guilty uh, conviction with Chauvin is that before Chauvin, the attitude was as a cop is I will get away with it. This is why Chauvin could sit there with his knee on his neck defiantly 
looking at the 17-year-old who's videotaping the whole thing because he was absolutely positively convinced that he would walk on this, that he was the police and he can get away with it. He didn't. And so I'm optimistic because now, uh, for the first time, police have to think about that. You know, maybe I'll get away with it, maybe I won't. So maybe it's not necessary for me to do all this. Or if I do it, let's make sure no cameras are around. (laughs) Well, let's uh, close with a a tougher uh, matter. Get your thoughts, both of you, on the issue of the Adam Toledo shooting that um, we were talking a lot about on this show. And this is a case I've had guests on who have been on both sides. Uh, Troy Leroy, I urge everybody to check out that interview from Friday. Uh, He believes that the officer should be held accountable for uh, shooting Adam Toledo. Suzanne Mendoza was on yesterday, uh, said she's a little uncertain about it, that uh, the officer uh, had a split second uh, to make a decision and uh, he was defending his life. Uh, Now the matter is in the hands of Kim Fox, the state's attorney, and she's going to have to make a decision as to whether to prosecute the police officer. I know there'll be a civil case. Or there may have been already a case filed. I think the, the family's lawyer said that they will file a case. So there will be a civil case, but I'm talking about a criminal case. And I'll start with you, Jim, and then uh, we'll close with Monroe. What do you think will happen? What do you think should happen uh, in the matter of the Adam Toledo shooting? It's a tough video to watch uh, because if you're putting yourself in the shoes of the officer, he's issuing instructions. He has, I think he has a belief as he's chasing down uh, the young man Toledo that that he has a gun based on the reports that they have and that they didn't find a gun further down the alley where they, where he started. So he has a belief that he's got a gun. He's, He's ordering him to get rid of it. And it's more clear from the other video that he, that the Toledo actually tosses the gun. So when he turns around, the first thing, I mean, he can't really say, the officer can't really say that he saw a gun because you, you don't see a gun. And it's not one of those things where he's holding a cell phone in his hands and maybe because of the flash, because of the flashlight, it looks like it could be metal or something like that. So it's, it's hard to see what the excuse is. But uh, Comptroller uh, Mendoza's right and other commentators are right that this did happen in an immediate split second. You know, the kid spinning around can certainly present a situation where you're not sure what to do. I don't know where he was aiming for. I don't know, you know, is, is one of the things you can criticize him for. Why was he aiming with what would be a fatal wound, but they're trained to shoot at center mass. Uh, could he try to disable him instead? Uh, it, it's, it's a much tougher case. It's not the showing case. You know, it's not some casual and almost clearly intentional murder. Um, and when you're being pursued, you know, running like that, it creates a situation that it's going to be more dangerous, but I'm not trying to blame a 13 year old boy here either. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know exactly what Illinois procedures are, whether that's something that could be, could similar to Minnesota could be taken out of the hands of the Cook County state's attorney's office and prosecuted by the attorney general's office with Kwame Rowell 
I don't know if they do that. Uh, I'm just not sure if that, there's a history or a process for that. It can make it easier because they're certainly removed, like like I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. instead of being in a hand in glove situation like the state attorney's office is with the Chicago Police Department. Um, but uh, I, I guess <laughs> I'll be honest; it's not a decision that I would want to have to make. Mm-hmm. But maybe uh, I, I also don't know what the new use of force statute and, and some of the police reform rules that they've uh, made into law, how that might impact statements that that officer either already made or was required to make. And I know they changed the rules on when they can make those statements and if they can amend them, because maybe he has an explanation, depending on what he's done with his Fifth Amendment rights, et cetera, that might explain this. Mm-hmm. You know, that It would be my goal anyway, if I was the one who was charged with reviewing this, to try to find out as much information as possible. Yeah. Because it's a t- it is a tough one. I'm, I'll be completely honest about that. That's what I see. Monroe? I agree. It's a tough decision. Uh, and and I, I have mixed emotions about it because the boy was 13, and he did not have a gun in his hand when he shot him. But on the other hand, uh, the policeman, police officer is in a hot pursuit, and... Um, he is running off of adrenaline. And so he may not, it may have almost been a reflex for him to, to, to shoot uh, with, with, when the kid turned around, although he didn't see a gun. And he didn't give him, I'm, I'm sort of leading towards a trial, though, because he, 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 he told him, uh, hands up, and he put his hands up and he shot him. But it was in a forward motion sort of situation, so it, it's tough. It, it really is tough. It, it, it is a very tough one. But I could tell you this right now. If there are charges brought, the defense will be have far fewer challenges, obviously, uh, than Nelson uh, faced in Minnesota. Right. And I, I just got to believe that that police officer would testify because you, if you watch the whole footage immediately, it's as though the officer knew he had messed up big time. Yeah. As opposed to Chauvin, who's like looking at the camera going, you can't touch me. Right. You know, I'm, I'm just going to kill yeah. this guy, you yeah. know, and get away with it. And right. you're just going to go home or yeah. I'll arrest you. Right. Uh, whereas the officer, you, if you watch the whole footage, immediately runs over, starts giving aid to the kid. Right. Uh, it's just, it's a horrific across the board video, as Jim was saying. And uh, I know Monroe, you agree. So obviously the circumstances are vastly different. Uh, the outcome is the same. There's a dead person, but the circumstances are different. And so just, I could, if there was a trial, I just, I mean, who am I to tell a defense attorney how to handle it? But I would implore, uh, you know, the uh, the police officer to take the stand and ex- try to explain like what was going through his mind. Um, but uh, Troy Laravier's point of view, which I must express, is that you cannot say you're putting your life on your line if you're not literally putting your life on the line. And uh, I know, Jim, you heard the interview. You heard that part of it. Uh, I don't know if Monroe did, but he was saying that that police officer at that moment, he made that decision to pull the trigger uh, before he could just absorb the information that the kid didn't have a gun. Yeah. 
And so that is unacceptable behavior. That's Troy's uh, point of view. Uh, so just to let give Troy's opportunity. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's gonna. This is gonna, This is a tough one. I don't know if charges will even be brought. We'll be following this one um, very clearly. Final thoughts before I let you guys go. Uh, there's three other cases that uh, Keith Ellison's lawyers have to charge. It's not over yet. Uh, Jim Coogan uh, in Minnesota. How do you think that's going to go? Well, I, I don't. I, I don't know if they're all going to be trials. I guess this all goes back to square one of whether there's you know what the utility is for those officers to insist on defending themselves and don't want to plead. I mean, there's, it's a whole different set of facts, but I don't, I guess it's, I still struggle to figure out why weren't they doing anything? Why weren't they questioning Chauvin more than they did? Um, it, it adds to the tragedy. You like, you know, I feel for, and I think everybody watching some of this testimony or hearing clips of it feel for the witnesses who are still, riddled with survivor's guilt over what they watched, knowing that a man died. And even if they did something, and thankfully they did as witnesses taking videos, later testifying, they didn't intervene. Mm-hmm. But who, you know, how can you? You know that those, that's a police officer. He's got the, he's acting under color of law. He could pull his gun on you. You could be arrested. And who knows what he's going to do to you because from what you're watching, he's murdering someone right in front of you. Right. Um, but the officers are in a different situation. Why are they deferring to him? I don't understand what their explanation could possibly be. Again, this is not the prescribed use of force here. This is not what they train people to do. Once you have someone in custody, you don't put uh, potentially terminal pressure on their ability to breathe. So what are these guys thinking? Mm. Um, I'm, I, they should be charged. That's That seems like justice to me. And I guess frankly, after this is done, maybe, maybe they'll lose some steam and figure what's the point of this. Let's just, cause that's the whole point of a plea bargain. Let's go back to square one. Yeah. You settle cases because there's something in it for you. Unless the prosecutors are saying, we don't care. We don't want your plea bargain because they don't have to, they don't have to offer them anything if they don't want to, uh, if they want to continue. But then you get into, is this a reasonable use of resources to go through trying these guys um, if they are, if their defense lawyers are calling up and saying, listen, we know what's going to happen. Can we get some kind of, you know, second degree, whatever, indifference, something and, uh, serve some minimal sentence or not even serve a sentence. I don't know if those guys deserve to be in prison, but it sure seems like they're, they, they, they clearly had more, they should have done more. They should have done something. So, it, so if you're just asking just blank slate, what does justice feel like? Something has to happen. Mm-hmm because they did more than just screw up on the job here. I mean, they weren't blind to what was happening right in front of them. It went on for nine minutes. Yeah. It wasn't just one split second gunshot. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'll be curious to see as well. I, I, I don't, it's hard to feel sympathy for them in this situation, even if they just kind of froze, um, you know, you've, you've even if, and one guy's only, he only had been an officer for a very short period of time, but, but you're a human being. What, what, where's your judgment at? What are you thinking about? You, mm-hmm. All you think about is policing and arresting. Like that's what your training is. So what, at what point do you start to, it occurs to you, this isn't going well, something bad's going to happen. Maybe I should say something or radio this into the boss or whatever. So Monroe, your thoughts. Um, 
I, I want to see them receive some sort of punishment. If, you know, if it's only uh, that they get 60 days in jail and, 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 and something on their record, because we've got to condition the police mm-hmm. into not killing black people just because they feel like it. And, and that there won't be any consequences if they do, or in aiding and abetting. We, we, we just, I mean, this is where things need to go. And, and after, with Sheldon in jail and others up for trial, um, the more cases that are made against police and uh, police brutality, then it will stop at some point. When when you're at risk, um, then you will your your behavior will improve, and so we need this. Yeah, it's called a deterrent, uh, and uh, it's so funny that uh, we talk about deterrence, just crime in general that are committed by uh, quote unquote civilians, but somehow or other deterrence has never really have been applied uh, in police cases with the exception of being the civil matter again, which (laughs) the public as a whole will pay out uh, on these cases, as Jim pointed out, uh, as though the public was at wrong. When I guess you could obviously say they, they put up with it Monroe. So I guess, you know, we put up, all those that we, when we, we began the show by talking about uh, Monroe being a troublemaker in the eighties. Uh, and uh, we'll close it with this reference, Monroe, you and I are old enough to remember this throughout the eighties, John Burge and his uh, midnight crew, midnight crew were torturing black suspects and into confessing <laughs> crimes that they may or may not have committed. And this was happening <laughs> in Chicago. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so the public is paying a price, but, um, in the t- in real time, the individual cops, uh, do not. All right. Very good. Uh, Jim Coogan, thank you so much. It's been too long. And Monroe Anderson, I know you're a busy guy these days, but thank you very much, uh, for taking time. This is, it was a momentous moment in American, um, it was just American history, modern history. So uh, I'm glad you two could uh, take the time to come talk to me. I really appreciate it. All right. Okay. You, uh, you guys take care. And I'll talk right. It was my pleasure. That's Jim Coogan and Monroe Anderson. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Uh, I want to thank them for joining us. And I also want to thank the man, myth, the legend, the pride of joy in Alton, Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And as Monroe and Jim Coogan can tell you, back home in Alton, They call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it on petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 